Hi, welcome to Bookie. To unlock more world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. You will get 7 days free trail with more features. Today we will unlock the book The Theory of the Leisure Class. Nowadays, many people love to keep cats as pets, especially Americans. In the United States, about one-third of families own a pet cat. Altogether, there is an average of 2.2 cats for every American. That is how much Americans love cats. China comes in second. In China, around 53 million people have cats. This high demand makes purebred cats even harder to get, and of course, the number on their price tags increases accordingly. The most popular and expensive breeds include British Shorthair, American Shorthair, and Ragdoll. There is another breed called a Sphinx cat that is also quite expensive. This breed of cat does not have a single hair on its body, and thus requires extra attentive care from its owner. In contrast, it barely costs a thing to purchase a cat that is not purebred. Why are the purebred so expensive? Is it because of the high cost required to breed them? Or is it because of a high transportation fee? Both of these reasons could potentially be the cause behind it, but they certainly cannot fully explain the outrageous price of the purebreds. The theory of the leisure class provides an answer to this question. The reason purebreds are so expensive is that they are a product of the leisure class. The leisure class does not care about their money, and it can even be said that their pleasure is greatly based on their extravagance. You might be wondering how this is possible. What is wrong with these people? The explanation can be found in the following bookie. Veblen published the theory of the leisure class in 1899 when he was 42 years old. This book is his first and most important work. For over a hundred years after Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations was published, most studies related to economics have not made breakthroughs in progress. Suddenly, the theory of the leisure class was introduced. It immediately became one of the most popular books at that time, and was a must-have for intellectuals. This book also helped to establish Veblen's place in the history of economic theory, and allowed him to be known as the father of institutional economics and the great master of economics. In this book, Veblen analyzed the relationship between consumer behavior and psychology, and explained how the rich became a part of our society. To demonstrate the life status of the capitalists, Veblen introduced a new concept, the leisure class. He was thus able to reveal the leisure status of the upper class to the public. Let us now go through the key points of the theory of the leisure class by breaking them down into four different parts. The first part deals with the origin of the leisure class. The second part deconstructs the major characteristics of the leisure class. The third part exposes how the leisure class lives. The fourth part uncovers why the leisure class exists as a deeply rooted part of our history. Let us begin with the origin of the leisure class. What is the leisure class? The leisure class refers to the upper class of our society, who does not have to participate in productive labor, and who is wealthy and carefree. In other words, they are the people who do not have to work out of necessity and consequently have a large amount of free time, such as capitalists and the members of royal families. You would think that the leisure class has existed since the very beginning of human society. We believe that at any time in our history, 
there has always been an upper class. But the author of this book argued otherwise. He believed that the leisure class was the result of the development of history, and the rise of the leisure class was closely associated with the concept of ownership. During this stage of barbarism, humans did not have a sufficient means of production, and thus everyone lived in peace and was accustomed to relocation. Throughout this time period, they did not differentiate between leisure class and working class, and the idea of private ownership had not yet arisen. The incentives to compare were not strong among the members of the tribe, and comparison was not a widely known concept. Even if there was one, it most likely involved the practicality of the means of production. As society developed and the concept of ownership of people and objects began to form, a system that regarded goods as properties took shape. As a result, the necessary conditions for the leisure class as a fixed part of society arose. Firstly, society adopted predatory behaviors and lifestyles. Secondly, necessities were no longer scarce. Many people began to find ways to become free from frequent labor. Following this, society transformed into a predatory one, and the conditions for comparison also change. Aggressive action was seen as praiseworthy behavior, and killing became a symbol of honor. Some people showed their talent by hunting, preying on, and occupying a great portion of the means of production, weapons, food, captives, slaves, and women. Their enormous wealth gave them high social status and honor. In order to seek more honor, men became less willing to participate in simple labor. They were much more interested in roles that can bring them high social status and wealth. These included being a leader, a warrior, or one who held ceremonies and rituals. Under these circumstances, the distinction between the leisure class and the working class began to appear. Veblen pointed out that the regime of the leisure class is the result of earlier discrimination towards different occupations. People consider exploitative, possessive, and meritorious occupations to be the most valuable. They view repetitive labor as worthless, because it does not seem to be meritorious and is seen as work for slaves. Henceforth, this notion began to take root in human society. The habitual aversion towards the humbler occupations, and the idea of the leisure class arose from this notion. That concludes the first part of this bookie, The Origin of the Leisure Class. To summarize, the rise of the leisure class is closely associated with the notion of ownership. As human society transformed into a predatory one, many people broke free from the cycle of repetitive labor. As Veblen pointed out, the regime of the leisure class is the result of earlier discrimination towards certain occupations. Now let's move on to the second part, the major characteristics of the leisure class. As a special breed of rich people, the leisure class has a huge impact on the entire society. They demonstrate a few very obvious characteristics, such as conspicuous leisure, vicarious leisure, and conspicuous consumption. Let us first explain what conspicuous leisure is. After the leisure class acquired their enormous wealth, they could no longer be satisfied by simply fulfilling the necessities of life. They needed to satisfy their psychological desires as well. This psychological desire is called the invidious distinction. What is the invidious distinction? Well, as members of the leisure class, we have to appear superior to everybody else. The food we eat must be better, and the wine we drink must be of higher quality. 
Without these things, we run the risk of falling behind. This invidious distinction gave birth to the concept of conspicuous leisure. In order to prove that they belonged in the leisure class, they would reject labor as much as possible. People were truly at leisure when they did not have to work to survive. That is why the ladies of leisure loved to care for their flowers, and the gentlemen loved riding horses and playing cards. These actions are representative of their conspicuous leisure. When the leisure class participates in such activities, they are simply saying, I do not have to work for a living, all I have to do is enjoy life. This is how they show off their status as the leisure class. In a shocking example, some chieftains in the Polynesian region chose to suffer from hunger rather than eat with their own hands. There was also one French king who was so unwilling to move his chair, that he was roasted to death near the stove. These chieftains and kings all regarded eating and moving chairs to be slavish actions. They would never allow themselves to be seen engaging in them. Why do such extreme cases exist? This is because all of these behaviors serve to demonstrate the great amount of leisure the upper class possesses. It shows how they do not have to worry about trivial matters, because there will always be other people responsible for those things. This shows how their wealth supports their social status, and even becomes a part of their courtesy, dignity, and tradition. The book argues that courtesy is both the product and symbol of the leisure class. In ancient times, such courtesy was nothing more than the relationship between the superior and their subordinate. In other words, courtesy was simply the manifestation of social status. It was this courtesy that allowed the leisure class to be awed and respected by the common people. One can certainly earn a high status by working hard, but no amount of good fortune or skill could help one become as cultured as those with money. Good courtesy takes both money and time. It is thus unobtainable for people who spend all of their time engaged in work and labor. This makes the upper-class manner of action and speech a strong mark of their leisure and wealth. These bread-in-the-bone characteristics which are taught since childhood, are the last barrier towards the leisure class. Now, perhaps it's easier for us to understand why people have to work on their courtesy in order to acquire a higher social status. The concept of conspicuous leisure has some derivatives. This leads us to the next important concept from this book, vicarious leisure. As the economy progressed, the structure of social status also developed. Another group of individuals also became segregated from the working class, and Veblen named them the vicarious leisure class. These people offer intimate services to the upper class. They include the body servant of the queen, the horseman of the king, the spouse and children of noblemen, and the senior butler. They are the embodiment of their master's wealth and honor. By vicariously consuming the master's excessive wealth, they are manifesting their master's high social status. For example, if a master has a well-dressed and well-mannered senior butler, it certainly means that the master himself is honorable and elegant. The butler thus fulfills their role as the embodiment of his or her master's vicarious leisure, and people can know the master's status by observing his or her butler. In a traditional patriarchal society, women have a very low social status, and they live as dependents to men. That is why ladies are often one of the most important groups of the vicarious leisure class. For example, in the Middle Ages, European ladies were required to put on girdles, 
which deform their lungs and increase their likelihood of catching respiratory diseases. Some women even died because their girdles were too tight. Such corrupt custom seems to be a reflection of the beauty standards at the time, but if we explain it using the vicarious leisure concept, we reach an entirely different conclusion. Veblen would say that the girdles allow the women to fulfill their duty as a participant of the vicarious leisure group. How so? The girdles made it impossible for women to lift heavy things, and thus drove them out of the labor force. Not having to work is the best way to show that they are of the vicarious leisure class. Thus, this intentional physical defect revealed these women to be the possessions of the leisure class, and function as a sign of their leisure. The author observed that as society develops, the total number of members in the vicarious leisure class also decreases. However, no matter what, the wife will always be the last symbol of the vicarious leisure class that the master keeps. In the Western world, most lower middle class families have the wives alone play the traditional role of vicarious leisure and vicarious consumption. It is worth mentioning that the role assigned to women, the role of vicarious waste, still exists in the modern world. Their so-called fashion, including all the luxurious clothing and accessories, such as high heels, long skirts, fancy bonnets, and all other modern women's clothing have one characteristic. That is, they all ignore the comfort of the individual. This is because according to traditional courtesy, when compared to men of the same class, women were required to abhor labor even more when showing their leisure. Practical work was not seen as the responsibility of the well-bred women. To this day in some countries, many women still believe that men should be responsible for making a living, and women need only to look pretty. Men must work and provide for the household, while the women need only to decorate the household and to make themselves look pretty. These women, on the one hand, have gotten rid of women's low social status in earlier times, but on the other hand, they still let themselves be appendants of men without realizing it. The vicarious leisure class mentioned earlier not only represents the conspicuous leisure of the leisure class, but also reflects their conspicuous consumption. This is the third concept that we will explain. Conspicuous consumption often forces the leisure class to pay for intangible things, such as honor and dignity. Although they hate labor, they always act as if they are busy, often with cultural-related activities and charity events. They never hesitate to pay for these activities, because such conspicuous consumption enforce their identity as the leisure class. Furthermore, discrimination in the consumption of goods gives birth to the so-called Veblen effect, an anomaly in market behavior wherein the higher the price of one product is, the more the consumer will desire it. The following story perfectly illustrates the Veblen effect. It is said that during the reign of Napoleon III, people had just recently learned how to extract aluminum out of minerals. However, due to poor refining technology, aluminum was very rare at the time, and was even more expensive than gold and silver. Even the ministers and nobles were not able to afford it, not to mention the common people. Napoleon III as the king of France at the time, liked to put on banquets and feasts. For every banquet, he would prepare silver utensils for the guests, while he himself preferred to use aluminum ones. After the technology of aluminum smelting was invented, the price of aluminum decreased rapidly, and caused its popularity to skyrocket. Aluminum utensils thus lost their place at the banquets, 
and everything reverted to gold and silver once again. If we are speaking in terms of practicality, gold and silver utensils are no worse than aluminum ones. Not to mention that aluminum utensils might even be harmful to our health. So why was the renowned Napoleon III willing to replace the former with the latter? The reason was simply because the price of aluminum utensils was much higher than the gold and silver ones at that time. That is why Napoleon III preferred aluminum utensils, for they were the reflection of his distinguished identity. And that is a prime example of the Veblen effect, high price becomes the exclusive goal in the material life of the leisure class. You may think that the aluminum utensils of Napoleon III do not signify anything, because it happened more than 200 years ago. However, in modern society, there are still many frauds that are based on the Veblen effect. One example is the notorious diamond scam. Think of your initial impression of a diamond. What is it? Elegant, beautiful, or precious? Well, not exactly. These impressions we have of diamonds are simply an illusion, an illusion created by the diamond dealers. Is a diamond really that rare? More than 30 countries on this planet own diamond mines, and each year they produce around 100 million carats of diamond in total. If we were to split all the diamonds on earth in equal pieces, then each person could get at least 75 carats of diamonds. But if that is true, where do the impressions we have of diamonds come from? Well, they come from the fact that diamond dealers only allow the sale of a tiny amount of diamond in the market, and then set an extremely high price for it. This is why diamonds appear to be so rare. Because of the notion the less, the more precious and the marketing strategies of the dealers, we end up attributing images such as beauty, elegance, and love, to diamonds and then spend months worth of our salaries on a tiny piece of this transparent rock. And that concludes the second part of our bookie today, the characteristics of the leisure class. The leisure class presents their high social status with conspicuous leisure, and this conspicuous leisure gradually becomes a part of their tradition, courtesy, and dignity. Besides conspicuous leisure, there is also the class of vicarious leisure. This class of people are the symbol for their master's wealth and dignity. They indicate their master's high social status by vicariously consuming their master's excessive wealth. Besides conspicuous leisure and consumption, the leisure class has many other ways to accomplish their conspicuous consumption. This conspicuous consumption gives birth to the Veblen effect, which states that the higher the price of one product is, the more the consumer will find it attractive. Today we are just sharing limited bookie. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller, please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. You will get 7 days free trail with more features. Dir hat dieser Podcast gefallen? Dann klicke jetzt auf Abonnieren und empfehle ihn weiter. Bleib immer auf dem Laufenden und folge uns bei Twitter, Instagram und Facebook. Mehr Podcasts findest du auf meinpodcast.de.